Thank you, Jason, Lissa, Jordan. More love to thee. Let me take a look around here real quick. See who I'm talking to. See who's missing so I can call them and threaten them next week. <laughs> no, no. That's one of the reasons we have you guys fill out the connection cards, by the way. Uh, sometimes I don't catch you. Uh, we don't see who's here or not. So it's just our way of, if you're missing, we want to call you. We want to check in on you. We're not calling you to give you a guilt trip for not coming, anything like that. We just want to make sure you're okay. We care about you. So, And then the other thing is just to communicate to us prayer requests, praises. We would love to rejoice with you if God is doing something in your life. We would love to pray with you and for you uh, if, if that is what you need and it's what we all need. So this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Now, we were in Mark 9, verses 42 through 50 last week. And this was actually a two-part sermon because we only covered the first point from last week. So if you missed last week, no worries. Just go online and on the inside of the bulletin on the upper right-hand side, you go to our website and there's a members tab and that just means that you attend Summit and it'll require to put in a password, but the password's right in the bulletin and then you can download or live stream or whatever the sermon from last week and get caught up or if you miss one at any time or point. Okay. But this week we're going to cover the second two points of the outline. So last week we looked at avoid causing others to sin. We'll look at the next two points this week. Mark 9. So if you're using one of those blue church Bibles, if you turn to page 844, actually 845, that will bring you to the text that we'll be in this morning. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open us in prayer. And just ask God to kind of work through our hearts. I don't know about you. I'm feeling a little sluggish. I feel a little sluggishness in the room. It may just be me. Yesterday, by the way, one of the things that uh, we've done with some of the offerings that have come in is we've purchased a a U-Haul truck. And the reason we did that is we currently use a trailer, a very tiny, I mean, it's a significant size trailer, but we've kind of outgrown it. So now we are, we purchased a used U-Haul truck and we're refurbishing it to bring it up to specs for us, make it reliable. And also we've, we're building in custom-wise, we're building some stuff in the back to make loading and unloading the trailer more efficient, quicker, faster, uh, less of a burden for our people. But yesterday I, I did something stupid. Actually, three of us did something stupid. <laughs> Myself and Robert and Bill decided to move this huge cabinet that Robert had built, custom cabinet, to put inside of the trailer I told my wife when I left the house that I would be back in 15 minutes. Two hours later, uh, yeah, so my, my shoulders and my back and, 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 and same with my brothers are experiencing a little bit of regret. But we did get it in, praise the Lord. We did get it in. We almost died. Where's Robert? Where is Robert? Robert, did we not almost die? We did. Robert was literally underneath with his back like this underneath with his back like this with Bill and me holding this gigantic cabinet and I had to tell Robert three times get out from underneath the cabinet we cannot hold this any longer <laughs> three times and I thought he's going to die and I wouldn't want to have to tell his wife that And anyway and he's got to build the rest of the stuff for it no I'm kidding <laughs> but we're 
I'm thankful for the men and women who serve so faithfully, so diligently, just give of themselves and their extra time, and they have busy lives, and they're working, and they got all that stuff going on, and still they find time to serve. I can't tell you how thankful we are. So this morning, we're going to look at this message called Intolerance for Sin. Intolerance for Sin. I don't know, I did not see this movie. Um, maybe you did, but it was called, I think it was called 127 Hours. 127 Hours. It was based on the true events of of this man, this mountain climber, who found himself in some mountains of Utah between some canyons, and he was by himself, and he was an experienced climber. But in the process of doing this, somehow a boulder dislodged and caused him to fall, and the boulder fell with him. I think I'm getting the story straight. True story. And it lodged him in this tiny, narrow canyon so that his arm could not break free. He's in a position now where he can't get free and nobody can see him and nobody knows that knew that he was even gone or where he was. They couldn't find him. He had no GPS tracking, anything like that. So this 127 hours is basically this drama that unfolds as he's stuck inside of this canyon. To make a long story short, my understanding is, is after he realized, after... Uh, depleting his resources, water, food, and such, he realized, if I don't get out of here, I will die here. So, he mustered up the courage, I don't even know what to call it, courage, insanity, I don't know, to break his arm, his forearm, and then to take a, not a sharp knife, but a dull knife that he had, and cut his arm off. And the whole thing was, I guess, filmed. He had a camcorder. And, and I, but he did it. And he then had to get back out of the canyon and he escaped with his life. Drastic circumstances, beloved. I don't know if you would do that. I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know, being in that situation, who knows what you would do. Right now, I'd say, no way, man. I would just die. I'd be like, God, kill me now or put me to sleep or something. I'm not cutting off my own limb. But who knows what you would do. The, the will to survive is very strong. And when drastic measures are upon you, or circumstances, that is, they call for sometimes very drastic measures, right? What would you do if your life depended on it? What would you be willing to do? Would you cut off your own arm? Well, look at the text with me now. Look at the text with me. Mark chapter 9, and just follow as I read along. Remember, these are the words of Jesus Christ to His disciples, who He is now focused and intense about training His twelve men on what it means to be a follower of His, a Christian, a disciple. He says in verse 42, and we looked at verse 42 last week, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Verse 43, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die 
and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going together to look or consider the last two of the three warnings that are in the outline uh, that you have in your bulletin that we need to heed or give serious attention to in order to overcome sin and truly live for Jesus Christ. That's where we're going this morning. You guys ready? Yeah. Woohoo! Yeah, there's some sluggishness. All right. It's okay. I'm with you. I'm sluggish too, but let's just uh, open in a word of prayer now. Father God, I thank you for your word. It is convicting. It is powerful. It cuts us. Father, and so I pray that it would do that even this morning, that it would have its way with us, that we would not resist it, that we would not rebel against it, that we would not shut our ears to it or close out our hearts against it. But Father, we would receive it and respond to it and submit to it as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who don't, and they're just here and we're glad they're here, Father, I pray You would work especially in their hearts to bring them to that place of repentance and faith and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this for Your glory, for Your praise, not ours, for Your name to be lifted up, not ours. In Jesus' name, Amen. So last week, like I said, we looked at the first point of the outline. And in case you weren't here, just by way of reminder, I want to remind you, it was avoid causing others to sin. And we drew that point from verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast or thrown into the sea. This is a somber warning, basically, and I'm just giving you a brief summary of the 50 minutes it took to say all this last week. This is a somber warning against doing anything that might harm or injure the faith of a fellow believer, or let me put it another way, cause them to turn or fall away from God by directly or indirectly causing them to sin or stumble. That's the warning that Jesus is making. And as I said last week, sin is not a joke. It's not a joke. And Jesus is not amused when Christians, especially Christians, carelessly and casually lead or entice another believer to sin, to violate God's law. Either indirectly by just being a poor example, an unholy example of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, or directly by intentionally drawing another believer into sin. And we talked in detail about that last week. The conclusion that we drew was Jesus takes sin seriously, beloved. We may not, but He does. And as His followers, He wants us to take it seriously too. It's not a game. It's not a joke. We should go out of our way to the extreme, if necessary, to avoid causing another brother or sister in Jesus Christ of sinning or stumbling. Go out of our way to avoid that. But guess what? That becomes all the more difficult if you and I are ourselves preoccupied with sin. 
absorbed with sin. If our lives are characterized more by what God hates, that would be sin, than by what God loves, that would be righteousness, then we will no doubt fail to avoid, to cause others to sin. We'll fail. And that brings us to the second point in the outline. Avoid permitting yourself to sin. And I'm going to read the text one more time, beginning in verse 43, because it's, it's so shocking, so violent, <laughs> so radical, so in your face. But remember, these are not the words of men. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He says in verse 43, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So here's what happens. From 42 to 48, Jesus has now turned the focus of his disciples from being concerned about the spiritual health of others to being concerned about their own relationship to sin. In other words, Jesus' intolerance for sin, and we talked about this last week a lot, does not end with him warning his 12 disciples to not cause other believers to sin. That's not enough. That's not the only step in discipleship. But it also includes some very serious and somber words to his disciples about taking severe and drastic actions whenever necessary, whenever the circumstances call for it, to prevent sin in their own lives. Jesus hates sin. Okay? He hates it. And his followers must hate it too. Not just in the lives of others, but most importantly in their own personal lives and walks with God. They must come to a place where they hate it. And in order for Jesus to make his point loud and clear in regard to the relationship we should have with sin, which is no relationship at all, he used a style of communication that we call hyperbole. Hyperbole. So let me just describe that or define that for you. Hyperbole is deliberate and obvious exaggeration used for emphasis or effect. Okay? So let me give you an example. I have a million things to do today. You ever said that? Do you really have a million things to do today? But what that means is I have, it's off the chart. That's another. It's just so, I have so much to do. I'm not even sure I can ever get it done. Let me give you another example. I have told you a thousand times. Now, that could be true with your teenagers. So I'm not sure about that one. But sometimes with its husband and wife, you know, going back, I've said this a thousand times. Is it really a thousand times? It just means you've said it so much, you've lost count. Or I like this one. I'm starving to death. I love it when people in America say that if they had any idea what that really means, right? That just means I'm really hungry. I haven't eaten for at least three hours. <laughs> I kid you not. 
we uh, we like to occasionally go on a cruise, and when you go on a cruise, it really is all about the eating. And you, I, I'm not kidding, you develop a habit where you start to eat every two hours. And if you don't, you feel like you're starving to death. I'm not kidding. And you get off the ship and you're like, it's been three hours since we've eaten. It, it's, it's the craziest thing. And I like, this is my last one because I love it. This is hyperbole. When I was your age, I used to walk 15 miles to school in the snow, barefoot, uphill both ways, right? We all know that one. Is that true? Someone once, I, an uncle tried to convince me that was true. It's not true, but it just means my life was difficult. It was very hard. That's all hyperbole. Way more difficult than you little whiny, you know, child and your pathetic complaints. That's, that's what you're saying to someone when you say that. So the statement, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's hyperbole. Jesus is not here giving a surgical solution to deal with sin in our lives. Okay? He's not saying the way you get rid of sin, the way you prevent yourself from sinning is amputation, physical amputation. I honestly, beloved, I wish it was that easy. I wish it was that easy. I wish if I, not that I would do this, but if I could just theoretically remove my eye or cut off my foot, that somehow that would prevent me from sinning against God. But we know that's not true. Just look back to the left. Just look to the left. Mark chapter 7 in your Bibles, just a few chapters, and let your eyes scan through chapter 7 until you arrive to verse 21, and just remind you about what we've already looked at in the past weeks. Jesus says here in verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, Pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Right? So that's the sin issue is deep inside. It's flowing out from that, that spring that is polluted with sin, bubbling out of our lives. So this is not Jesus' instruction of how to Remove sin. Just get rid of your arm or your leg. But the the language is meant to communicate just how serious his men, the twelve, must be about sin as disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. That their intolerance for sin needs to reach a level where they would be willing, if need be, to take radical or extreme measures in order to keep themselves from sinning or turning away from God. See, because they don't want anything to do with sin in their lives. Now, you know, I just tell you, I, this is in my notes, but we can be very good at being all worked up about sin in other people's lives. We'll have long conversations about it. Right? We can point it out, we can identify it, We can talk about why it's so evil and wicked. But what about the sin in our lives? Are we quick to identify that sin, to point it out, and to do whatever it takes to get away from it, to turn from it, and even to prevent it in the future? And beloved, if it's not strong enough language, he increases, that is Jesus, increases the seriousness of the situation by presenting it in a life or death situation. 
just like that man stuck in the, in the canyon. He's saying continuing in sin, refusing to fight against it, will surely result in being cast into hell. That's what the text says. Look back at the text with me. Three times. Verse 43. Three times he mentions hell. So it would be better to cut off your hand than to interlife cripple with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire, just in case you're, you're not sure what he's talking about. Verse 45, the end of it. It is better for you to interlife lame, that means without your feet, than to be thrown into hell. And then finally in verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, rip that thing out because it would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, one eye because the other one's missing, than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. That's Jesus is saying that. Pursuing or following Christ, that is, being His disciple or a Christian, as Jesus has described it, Not as maybe your friend has described it or you've heard another church describe it. Let's just stick with the way Jesus has described it. Must become, must become a life characterized or marked by a willingness and obedience to do whatever it takes to avoid and part with sin. Knowing that everlasting life in the kingdom of God is the conclusion for those who follow Christ in this way. In this way. The way He has described it. And three times He mentions life, life, kingdom of God. 43, verse 45, and verse 47. And He is calling those who call on Him as Lord and Master to be intolerant of sin in their lives. End of story, period. No matter what it takes. Because the other option is not to do that. And the consequences are eternal life or eternal death. That's what he's saying. Here one writer says, Whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God, Whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God must be discarded. When? Tomorrow? Next week? At the new year? Right? That's how we are, man. I know that's how we are. Right? We make all of these promises to ourselves. I'm going to get right with God in whatever area. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start on Monday. Or I'm going to start at the new year. And then it doesn't go well. So I guess we have to wait till the next cycle to start again. No! We need to do it now. If you're intolerant of something, you don't plan to get rid of it. You don't want anything to do with it right now. Promptly, decisively. The writer says, even as a surgeon amputates a hand or leg in order to save a life. You know, sometimes when these hands or legs, you know, you saw this a lot. In war, you've seen it in war, you see it in Vietnam, these guys would get gangrene or whatever and they'd basically bring them in and they said, listen, uh, you have two choices. You can go ahead and keep your gangrene leg. You can keep it, but you will die. Or we can cut it off right now. You'll lose your leg, but you will live. That's the idea. He would say, well, you know, let me think about it. 
Uh, yeah, this grand green leg is death to me, but maybe I'll uh, work on it next week or I'll get around to it. No, you now become the thing that you once needed. You become intolerant of that. The thing that you once loved, you can't stand it because you know that brings you death. So get rid of it. Cut it off. Be done with it. I never want to see it again if it means life for me. But, beloved, this requirement is probably one of the strongest that Jesus makes of being a disciple. Probably one of the most radical statements. But it is no different than what we've already looked at. He's not all of a sudden lost his mind. He is consistently giving the same message. The problem for us in the 21st century is we've heard a lot of other messages about what it means to follow Christ. And a lot of it, there's no mention of removing sin, getting rid of sin, resisting sin, abandoning sin, and pursuing with passion and fervor our righteousness. His righteousness. Listen, this is Mark 8.34. I'll just remind you. These are some of the words of Christ. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Words of Christ. Take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. Now, I'm not going to rehearse all this, but... This is similar, very similar and consistent message and language. And in that, we covered that message in fickle fans or faithful followers. So you can go on the website and pull that up. Keep your life and have Jesus on the side is not what Jesus is saying. Okay? In other words, I'll keep my own goals and ambitions and desires. I'll even keep my sin but I got Jesus in my back pocket and He's my ticket into heaven. That is not what being a disciple of Jesus Christ is. It is not. We've made it that, but that is not biblical. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. Period. And so we in Christianity, if we are His followers, are going through a process of giving it all to Him. A process, certainly. It's not like, you know, the day after we become a Christian, we've got it. We've got it nailed. And we've given everything to Him and we're walking with Him. No way. I've never seen that. In my, all my experience, I've never seen that. But it is a process and a willingness to consistently lose my life to gain His life. It's an all or nothing proposition. He uses this language, by the way, this radical, surgical kind of language, again in Matthew 5, 27 through 29, in the Sermon on the Mount is what we refer to. We call it that because it's a message that Jesus Christ gave on top of a mountain. Okay, so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And some pretty radical words in that message too. But one of them were, maybe you'll be reminded of this, verse 27 through 29 of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, in other words, your eye is causing you to lust, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, that's body parts, that's what he's saying, it's better that you lose one of your body parts than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
See, Jesus' message here is consistent, beloved. Those who claim to be followers of Christ cannot and must not at the same time be casual or apathetic about their sin. It's that simple. If they are, then they seriously need to ponder Jesus' words here in Mark because they will find no support and no encouragement from Him for their tolerance of sin. There is no safe haven in the Bible for those who want to continue in sin and follow Christ. It is that simple. Instead, you just continue to get these radical messages thrown at you. It is allegiance to Jesus. And if it is allegiance to Jesus, it cannot be allegiance to sin. They are mutually exclusive. If I had to boil it all down, I would just say that. Allegiance to Jesus and allegiance to sin, loyalty, are mutually exclusive. So what that means for you and I is we as Christians, those who proclaim that we are followers of this One who makes these statements, we must declare war against our sin. War. We must not negotiate or compromise or work out a peace treaty with our sin. A person, beloved, who refuses, says, I'm not going to do that. I like my sin, I'm going to stay in it. And they won't battle it. Reveals their true allegiance. And it's not to God. And it's not to His Christ. And if you have any doubt about that, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Write down 1 John chapter 3 and read verses 1-10. through And read it again. And read it again. Until you're convinced by the Word of God that that is true. See, I think this is part of the problem and I think this is why the Word of God is under attack in so many circles, even in Christian circles. And in the sense I mean that they question the authenticity or the reliability of the Word of God, the Bible that we have. As if maybe this isn't really the Word of God. I'll tell you why we... It's not why everyone does that, but I'll tell you why a lot of people do that. Because it's helpful when you run across passages like this. Well, maybe that's not what God really said. Maybe Jesus didn't really say that. Because it's so confrontational. It's so in your face. And instead of dealing with it by the grace of God, instead of surrendering to it and say, yeah, that's what i got to do. Because I am your follower. I've got to abandon sin. Instead of doing that, they say, ah, maybe, maybe that's, you know, not what the Word of God really says. And then they go on, living in sin. Living their way. Living in disobedience. But if you're convinced, like I am, that the Word of God that we have, the 66 books, the Bible, it really is straight from God, God-breathed, inspired, by the Holy Spirit, if you really believe that, then you're just committed. Whatever you read, you're like, okay, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard. But i got to accept it. This is the very words of God to me. Alright. This is, this is a fun Sunday, I know. It's a fun Sunday, and I don't have a lot of jokes sprinkled through this sermon. Because sin is just no joke. It's just no joke. 
Third, avoid losing your saltiness. That's the third point. So we've got to avoid permitting ourselves to sin and we've got to avoid losing your saltiness. Look back at the text with me if you would. Mark 9, verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, let me just say a couple of things here about verse... You can pop verse 49 back up there, if you could. For everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, this is considered by many Bible commentators as one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to understand the meaning of. I'm just going to tell you that right out the gate. There are multiple interpretations. And listen, not all of the Word of God is like this, but there are some areas that are difficult to understand because we're not sure about the context or the culture or what exactly the point is that the, 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 the person who spoke these words, or in this case Jesus, is trying to make. And there are reasonable estimations on, on different sides. So in this case, believe it or not, there are 14, at least 14 different interpretations. Now, I don't think it's helpful on a Sunday morning to go through all 14 different interpretations and then try... You guys would be like, like I was all week. And you'd be like, I, that, I'm done. I want to leave. So, I think my job is to come to you with the one that I think is the best. And at the same time, I reserve the right to change my mind in the future upon further study. I'm telling you that. And that can happen. I don't. Just so you know, I'm working through the Word of God with you. I don't have it all figured out. I know quite a bit, but I, I am challenged by the Word of God every week in trying to work through this. So, here we go. Okay? Salted with fire. Salt and fire, the only place we kind of see that combination in the Bible and in, in the historical context would be in sacrifices. In sacrifices that the Jewish people made to God that they were commanded to make. They were made by the nation of Israel on an altar and many of them were consumed by fire. And according to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, God gave instructions that they were to salt the offering before it was consumed. Now, without getting into all of why that's the case, I just want you to know that part. So there is a connection between salt and fire. At least we find it in the sacrifices that were made to God by the nation of Israel. So, let me try to, I'm going to draw this out and hopefully I won't confuse you. So to those who follow Christ, because he's saying everyone, and I believe everyone in this case are those who follow Christ. Not everyone in general, but everyone, his disciples who follow Christ, will be salted with fire. So, those, his disciples, will be sprinkled or salted or seasoned with fire as they become living sacrifices to God. And we see that language in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If you could pop that up. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Christians, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your lives, as a living sacrifice. In other words, you will continue to be a living sacrifice before God, surrendering yourself, giving up your life 
that you may gain His. And this sacrifice is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay? So, if we're supposed to be sprinkled or seasoned or salted with fire, again, does that mean literal fire? No, I don't believe so. That would consume us. I believe fire here is representing difficult trials or circumstances that are reality to one degree or another for all those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ and are denying themselves and picking up their cross and following Him. So these are directly trials and persecutions and suffering that are related to specifically to those who follow Jesus Christ. They're suffering because of that. They're experiencing trials because of that, not just the general sufferings of life. And I think that makes sense because Peter, the Apostle Peter, who most scholars believe was Mark's main source for writing the Gospel of Mark. Just so you know, Mark Mark did not... A lot of the information he got, he got from the Apostles. And much of his information we believe he got from the Apostle Peter because Mark and Peter were companions. In Peter's Gospel, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12... He uses this similar type of language in this theme or this idea. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. In other words, as you partake and share in the sufferings of Christ, as you stand up for Christ as you live for Him, as you move away from sin and towards righteousness, rejoice in these things, these fiery trials that have come upon you, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Verse 14, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. I know you think maybe you're not, but you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's an indication to the person that they are His because... They're sharing in the sufferings that He shared in. They have a union. They have a union in suffering for righteousness. It is necessary, I believe, what Jesus is saying, you will be salted with fire. It is necessary for Jesus' disciples to be salted or seasoned, not with salt, but with fiery trials and persecutions. Why? Because they act as a purifying element as they burn away or consume that which is corrupt or worthless in our lives. That which is corrupt or worthless in our lives. And if you're a note taker, you can write down Numbers chapter 31 verse 23 and even the passage we read this morning in Malachi chapter 3 verses 2 through 4 where you see the idea that fire is displayed as a a tool that purifies or cleanses that which is exposed to it or goes through it. So fire acts as a refining tool, as a purifier. You see that type of understanding or language in Peter again. And I'll just read it to you and then we'll try to bring this all together. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7. through Same book in Peter. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gold, if you don't know the metals, excuse me, gold, silver, exposed to the fire, bring out the elements within that metal that are worthless, the dross we refer to it. It separates the pure gold or silver or other things, other elements, metals this is done to, and it brings out the worthless stuff so that can be removed or scraped off the top. So what you're left with is something that's pure. So Peter, in a sense, is saying the same thing. These fiery trials, these persecutions, these sufferings come into your life to remove the dross, the worthlessness, the things that are impure from your life. One writer says it this way, Disciples are to allow the sacrifices inherent in following Jesus, in other words, part of following Jesus, you can expect them, to purify their lives. Let me say that again. Disciples are to allow the sacrifices inherent in following Jesus to purify their lives. The very sacrifices I believe that Jesus is talking about when He says, you will be salted with fire. Now the connection between the statement salted with fire and these sacrifices, these ceremonial sacrifices made to God by the people of Israel I think it's very significant. Listen to what one writer says in that regard. Israelite burnt offerings, these are the offerings they brought that would be consumed on the altar of fire and were sprinkled with salt, were required to be wholly consumed by fire in order to be acceptable. In other words, they had to be completely burnt up. Smoke rising from the consuming fire was a pleasing fragrance or aroma to God. We see that in Leviticus chapter 1. That's what the text says. So this smoke that comes from this burning offering comes up and it says even the nostrils of God, it pleases Him, this aroma is pleasing Him, this sacrifice, complete sacrifice being made. The writer goes on to say, rather than consuming believers, the sacrifices they experience, this being salted with fire, rather than consuming believers in frustration and failure, however, Trials make their walk holy and acceptable to God, pleasing to Him. Testing by fire is not simply a painful necessity of discipleship, but an offering itself pleasing to God, a seasoning or salting with fire. If fires of trials and adversity surround the faithful, they do so as a consequence of their following the Son of Man who must suffer. In costly discipleship to the Son of Man, believers become salt and light to the world. I think that's where Jesus is going. He says, He just got through saying, you need to abandon sin. You need to do whatever it takes to prevent sin in your lives. Using hyperbole, cut off your hand, your foot, rip out your eye. It can be no part of your life. You have to be intolerant to that. Just so you know, you will be salted with fire. I will bring that which is necessary to work out that which is an impure and unrighteous and unholy and wasteful and worthless in your life. You can expect it. Because to be my disciple 
it's going to be necessary for sin to be worked out of your life. Why? Because you are to be salt to the world. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because I believe that's where he's going and that's what he says. And then you look at verse 50. So he makes this statement. Listen, you will be salted with fire. And then all of a sudden he says, salt is good. Look back at the text, verse 50. Salt is good. What? Okay, so here's how this will help us a little bit. Salt in the ancient world, right? Because that's contrary to what we're told. We're told salt is bad, right? That's what we're told. You stop eating. Well, one day the doctors, the scientists say salt is good. The next day they say it's bad. It's like coffee. I don't know. But most of them still say too much salt causes hypertension, so on and so forth. It's not good for you to raise your blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. So for us, salt, you know, remove the table salt from the table. That's not good. Okay. But in the ancient world where they had no refrigeration or freezers or such to, to retain the stability of their meat, primarily, or food, salt was cherished for its ability to preserve food and help keep it, keep it from rotting or decaying. In fact, a common saying among the people was, the world cannot survive without salt. Now, we probably we wouldn't say that today. We have refrigeration. We have freezers. But in that day, if you didn't have salt, you could not preserve your meat. You could not preserve your food. And you were bad off. That is why Jesus says here, listen guys, you're going to be salted with fire. Remember, salt is good, meaning it's valuable because of its benefits. And like I said, it served as an essential element to the ancient society in which Jesus was at the time. But Jesus wasn't trying to tell his men what they already knew, right? That salt is good. They knew that. But he's simply affirming it with everyone standing there, he's stating what everyone knows so that he can now raise a hypothetical question. So he says, listen, salt is good, verse 50. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in your lives. You're going to be salted with fire so that you will become this preserving salt in society. And let me, let me just say what we already know. Salt is good. Without it, we would be in trouble. But brothers, my men, what happens when the salt loses its saltiness? How are we going to make it salty again? And contained in that statement is a warning here now for Jesus, or for yes, for Jesus' disciples to heed, to listen to, to be aware of. Where well, I get the point: avoid losing our saltiness. If the salt loses its beneficial characteristics, that of preserving, if it becomes saltless, how would its preserving nature then be restored? How? How will you make it salty again? The answer is it won't. It won't. It will have lost its benefit. It will have become useless and worthless. Because it has lost its ability to keep food from rotting or decaying. And then after asking the question, Jesus commands His men, verse 50, have salt in yourselves. 
Have salt in yourselves. Jesus commands His disciples then to be like salt. Real and pure salt to the world. To be that godly influence that will prevent the putrefaction, I like that word, decay, rottingness, okay? Like, you know when you leave a piece of fruit out and it begins to rot and decay and putrefy and the flies come in and maggots and the worms? Get that image. Good. To prevent the putrefaction of humanity, of society. He is calling His disciples then to live in righteousness, to live for righteousness, to stand for righteousness, to promote righteousness, to proclaim righteousness, to suffer for righteousness, to sacrifice for righteousness. That is what is expected of all those who follow the Lord of righteousness. Any amens? That's what's expected. Here's what one writer says, Christians are to be the moral preservative of the world. They are to salt life, to stop it becoming utterly corrupt. But how can they do this if they themselves have lost all Christian distinctiveness? Huh? How are we going to be a preservative if we don't have any preserving quality? Because we're all caught up in sin. We're not even going out of our way to avoid causing others to sin. And we're doing nothing to prevent sin in our own lives. We resist the trials that come into our lives. We complain about them and the suffering and the persecution. Or we just avoid it at all costs, not realizing that that is the mechanism that God uses to purify His people, to remove the dross and the worthlessness in their life, that they might be salt in this rotting world. And he can see, you know, he concludes the statement here, and we're almost through in verse 50. He just says, You guys, be at peace with one another after he makes this statement. Have salt in yourselves, be at peace with one another. If you don't remember, this whole text, this whole conversation started when the disciples, Jesus kind of called them out on the carpet, were arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest among the twelve. Really, guys? Really? Be at peace with yourselves. Be salt. Avoid sin like the plague. And avoid causing any other brother or sister in Christ to sin or to stumble or to fall away from God. And so, let me just say this. Guess what we get to talk about next week? Guess what's in Mark chapter 10? Divorce, yeah. I know you're all going to want to come back because it's probably impacted you one way or another, right? You're either at a divorce or you've been through divorce through experiencing one way or another. But listen, regarding Christian distinctiveness, and I just connect these two, what is supposed to make us different? What is supposed to be distinctive about a Christian? Think about that. Is it just that they go to church on Sunday somewhat regularly? Is it that they carry a Bible? Is it that they have really cool Christian bumper stickers on their car? Is it that they don't cuss? Is that, is that the distinctive marks 
of a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I'll say to you, it, it may include those things, but it is not the main thing. The true distinctiveness about a, a Christian, what makes them a persevering in, or a preserving influence in society like salt is, is the overcoming of sin, personal sin in their lives, and the promotion of righteousness in their lives and the world around them. Beloved, I was looking at the, you know, I get this book and it has all these Christian books in it. It's, you know, there's always another book being published about Christianity or something along this Christianity. There are very few books that even talk about sin anymore. They'll talk about, listen, you want to have a better marriage, you want to have a better business, you want to feel better about yourself, you want to weigh less. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just saying that's the focus. Well, here's the truth. Okay? You want to have a better marriage? You're going to have to deal with sin in your life. That's the truth, beloved. You want to have a better work experience? You're going to have to deal with sin in your life. You want to deal with other things? I'm afraid to even say some things. I might offend somebody. You're going to have to deal with sin in your life. That is the issue. That was the issue for Jesus. That's what He's telling His boys. Guys, I am intolerant for sin. You need to be intolerant for sin. And if you do that, then and only then will you be salt in this world. Will you be a preserving influence? Will you have an impact on society? But the truth is, beloved, much of what so-called is the church today are not tackling sin. They're not even talking about sin. They're not battling sin in their own lives. And they are not distinctive from the rest of the world. Other than the fact that they have Christian bumper stickers or they might go to church or they carry a Bible. Maybe. But their lives look very similar to the guy who's not fighting sin and who does not call Jesus Christ Lord or Master. Do you hear what I'm saying? And it cannot be for us. It cannot be for us. God has given us His Spirit. He has purchased us with the blood of His Son. He has redeemed us so that we would be righteous. So that we would walk in righteousness. So that we would practice righteousness. So that we would move away from sin. So that we would be that influence in the world for the positive towards righteousness. That's what He's called us to. And He didn't leave us hanging. He gave us His Spirit who came inside of us and gave us a new heart and made us a new creature that we might walk in righteousness, beloved. Let's pray. God, I thank You for your time, this time this morning and I thank You for Your Word. And Father, I pray that it would work in my heart it has. I pray it would continue. This is a battle, an ongoing battle, or at least it should be, with sin. Father, I pray that it would work in the hearts of Your people here that have gathered to hear Your Word. Father, that it would have its way with them, that it would impact them, that they would begin to take steps to abandon sin, to, to prevent any sin in their lives. Father, we, we readily confess that we sin. And none of us are perfect, but that, but that doesn't mean in, 
And you've said in your word, it doesn't mean that you're okay then with us just sinning and being cruel about it or casual or, or not caring. But we have to be radical. We have to see sin the way you see it. You hate it. You loathe it. You despise it. It is wicked and vile. And all of us know that. But we get confused and begin to think it's okay or it's even good and something we should welcome. But, oh Lord, how many of us know and have family and friends or our own personal experiences where sin has wiped them out and has taken them down and destroyed their lives. And even if they can recover from that, the consequences follow them year after year after year. Why? Do we see sin as something that's favorable? Father, help us. Help us to see it as it really is. Wicked. Disgusting. And shouldn't be a part of our lives. Father, help us to to not cause another dear brother or sister to sin or fall away from You, to lead them into sin, either indirectly or directly. Father, help us to do whatever it takes to take extreme measures to prevent sin in our own lives. Father, help us to think that through and to get serious about sin. Father, help us. Help us to be the salt we need to be in this world that is decaying rapidly morally around us, falling apart, ripping at the seams, as immorality is is on display and cherished and celebrated. Father, may it not be for us who have been saved from sin, its consequences and its power and its future penalty who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, Your Son. Father, may that not be for us. Work through Your Spirit in our lives that we might overcome sin. For Your glory. Amen.